What is going on, fellow chatters? Today on the show, I get a chance to chat with singer, songwriter, and musician David Clayton Thomas. We chat about his new album, Mobius, how technology affects musicians, and some tales from his experience at Woodstock. The coffee that is along for the ride today is the peppermint mocha from Starbucks. And now, here's my chat with David Clayton Thomas. Joining me for a chat today is singer, songwriter, and musician David Clayton Thomas. How are things today, David? Wonderful. Thank you. A nice day here in Toronto. Yes, it's it's. Uh, I guess it's going to be a green Christmas. Uh, well, I'm going up to Aurora, oh, so, so Aurora's be, got snow already. It'll be a white <laughs> Christmas for you then. Yes, it will. Well, I it is a thrill to have a, a such a treasured musician on my show, someone who's graced the stage of Woodstock and still making music to this day. And speaking of new music, you've released a new album called Mobius, uh, yeah. where your single Back to the 60s got an amazing 900,000 plus views on Facebook. How- yeah, it kind of went viral. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a great song. It, it just It's such a classic song, but, you know, still kind of relevant to, to today with the music. Um, how was that process in recording? Um. Well, I wrote the song, basically, as I write all my songs, sitting here at home. I have a little studio at home and sketch out the, uh, the you know, the rough structure of the song. And then I take it into the studio with my musicians and and uh, go to the big professional studio to actually record it. So, but uh, your song collaborations, did you do any of that? Or was it just strictly you went in and just, you knew what you were, you, you wanted to write and it just came out? Yeah, that particular song I wrote by myself, about half the songs on Mobius were co-written with the musicians. The other half I wrote myself. Cool. Now, I mean, as I said, like, it's a nice album, a nice album of, of a callback to the 60s. But, I mean, it still, like, really sounds well to today. Well, you know, the kids at Parkland and whatnot really inspired it because I saw them 100,000 people strong marching in the streets. And it took me back to the day when half a million people showed up at Woodstock and literally stopped the war. So there is power there. So it was kind of written half, not just to remember Woodstock, although that that's the basis of the song, but also where we've come to and what kind of world we live in today and uh, whatever happened to all that idealism and that love and peace and all of those things that are sound kind of anachronistic today, but they they were the voice of an entire generation, weren't they? Yeah, and I mean, I guess it's something that sort of kind of got lost sort of in the 80s and 90s, and and with the, you know, I mean, with tragedy sort of comes that rise. go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it comes that rise of, of, of wanting to stand up for yourself. Yeah, well, the the kids at Parkland were a real inspiration. You know, they're finally yeah. somebody standing up and making some common sense. You know, and uh, I, like I say, that inspired me to to think back to to Woodstock and the '60s in general, and the the whole ethic of the '60s and what we stood for, and how we really believed we were going to change the world and bring love and peace to the world forever. It didn't happen. 
Now, but now it, it happened for a while. <laughs> now, with the, I mean, it is a little bit of a, a different world than the '60s, where not everyone listens to the same radio station. Essentially, not, not even everyone listens even to uh, the same spot where music comes from, um, and even like you know, the news, TV, movies, it's kind of spread out all over the place. So it's probably, I mean, with social media, I guess it's a little bit easier sort of to regroup and, and become stronger as a whole. Well, this was a pre-Spotify world where people actually bought records. Uh, now, of course, everybody just downloads them into their telephones, you know, into their smartphones. In those days, people actually went out and bought 12-inch vinyl records. And I think that gave, that, that was a sort of an empowerment there. Well, yeah, of, of course. And, and, you know, and I just mean me growing up in, you know, the, the sort of mid-80s and 90s, you gathered around the room with your friends and had the records out and you, you shared sort of your your thoughts on, you know, the songs on 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 the album i know i know i it came home to me this week when i i took delivery of a new car and i went and looked inside and there's no knobs or buttons <laughs> it's all on a computer touch screen all the controls are and i said where's the cd player and the salesman looked at me and said what cd <laughs> <laughs> like what age where did you come from you know mm-hmm. no you just put your playlist into your phone and plug the phone into the car and there's your, there's your playlist, you know, and it's got this beautiful bang and Olufsen sound system. And I'm going, well, how can I play my CDs? They don't even, CDs have gone the way of the ashtray in cars. They, they're not even putting a CD player in the cars anymore. Well, I mean, not even putting a CD in your computer so you can even put the songs onto your phone. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's true. I just had a friend over a little while ago who's pretty high-tech high savvy, and I was asking her, how can I get my favorite albums and put them into my phone? Because there's no CD player in my my new Audi. <laughs> <laughs> now, as a musician, as you're speaking like today with, with everyone streaming their, their music, um, what sort of is that gives the musicians a little bit more creative because they can sort of do songs one at a time or does it sort of impacted on, on, you know, a actual sort of feeling of an entire album? Well, well, there's two words here, music and business, the music business. A friend of mine used to say it's an oxymoron. The two words don't belong in the same sentence, but, uh, but it's true. Uh, Spotify itself totally destroyed the music industry. The record companies just went bankrupt. They went down like dominoes because nobody's buying CDs anymore. They're getting them basically uh, off of Spotify and these other sharing services. There's a dozen of them, of course. And um, the uh, Spotify is not paying the musicians. They're just paying the record companies for it. And the record companies do what record companies have always done is screw the artists, you know. So it literally decimated the industry. It's very, very hard now to uh, to make records in a that you know you're going to spend fifty, sixty thousand dollars making an album, and you'll never see that money again. It's gone. You're only doing it for the love of it now. You certainly won't ever make any money off of it. So it's the same. It's going to the the, the music industry is the canary in the coal mine. You know, 
next it's going to be, and it's already started, is movies. Why would somebody spend millions of dollars making a movie when the minute it goes on Netflix, it's owned by everybody? See, so, yeah, it has definitely, but it is the world we live in today, and we all have to adapt to it. And uh, the real artists are not doing it for the money anyway. They're doing it because that's what they do. They're doing it for the love of it. And I just put out Mobius last year, and I'm in the final stages of writing a new album for next year. And we know going into the studio that uh, we're never going to get that money back, of course. And unless something comes along, some miracle, and they start regulating things like Facebook and Spotify and all of these companies, which might just happen, who knows. But uh, right now, it's just... uh, open thievery they're just stealing the music they're not paying for it so it has taken a tremendous effect on the artists is there going to be a a time in the future where it balances out and the artists do get uh the money that you know they that they deserve for for putting the art out well, I link together Spotify and Facebook for a reason because yeah. they're both claiming they're just platforms. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not really, uh, you know, Facebook is not really a, a broadcast network, but they're so they're not governed by the same rules. And you've seen what's happening: that Facebook was weaponized by the Russians, and, uh, and nobody could tell me that Facebook didn't know it. They were getting ads that were bought in rubles for heaven's sakes, you know. So they just want the money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's leading to an age where uh, the government or governments, whoever, Canada, U.S., is going to realize that these things have to be regulated. You know, if somebody plays my record on Chum Radio here in Toronto, well, BMI gets like four cents in my name and two cents of it goes to me. Maybe more. Um and those rules have been completely obliterated by these streaming companies. And people don't understand. They don't realize that when they just download a song into their cell phone, that they're really stealing it because they're not paying the creator. Mm-hmm. The, the intellectual property has been lost. So, uh, yeah, it's taken a tremendous effect. As you can see, there's very few what you call record companies left. Yeah, and I guess... The independent record companies were the first ones to go here yeah. in Canada. They went down like dominoes, one after another. Uh, like I say, there's no CD player in my car. Why? Because nobody's buying CDs. So they're really buying air, aren't they? They're just buying stuff. Mm-hmm. Or renting and renting it. <laughs> they're, or renting it, yeah. And so the people who created that music uh, are being hurt. Now, but it's the world we live in. You can't put the genie back in the no. bottle, can you? And you sort of, I guess, you sort of have to learn where you can find your spot and where you can generate the revenue that you 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 need to live if you're going to be. Well, well, exactly. You know, I'm all I've kind of been in some discussions over the last few weeks with this new album. Do we even want to go to the record company at all? Mm-hmm. Why don't we just put it just put it out there on Facebook and you know all the social media sites because we're not going to make any money either way. Yeah. Once, once uh, the record company gets it, they turn it over to Spotify. Spotify streams it out there 
And that's the end of it. As you said, uh, back in the 60s, got one million views in the first three months on Facebook. Mm -hmm. That doesn't put any money in my pocket. (laughs) No. If only there was ads that went back to you. It's all very nice to say, hey, we got a million hits on Facebook, but financially it means nothing. And just like any other industry, whether it be books or movies, uh, music or General Motors, if there's no profit for the company, the company dies. If the company dies, the artist dies. Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to get all political and heavy here right before <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> That's okay. But, you know, you understand. It's the oh, reality yeah. of the world we live in. Yeah, and it, it, it's, it, you know, the, the world is changing. The jobs are changing even just, I mean, if you look at where, you know, like jobs that were 10 years ago don't even exist anymore. Right. So, and of it, course, the problem is technology is moving at light speed, and the law moves very, very slowly and deliberately. So the law hasn't even caught up to, by the time the law catches up to the technology, it's already moved on to somewhere else. The goalpost has been moved, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. It Especially takes years when... to get laws. We've been working up here in Canada yeah. is actually in that... Uh, in that uh, we've actually got some pretty good laws. We've moved some stuff through Parliament. Uh, there has been some progress up here in Canada. In the States, they got they got bigger problems to deal with, I guess, right now. So not much has been done to update our copyright laws. As you know, we have the, we have the independent guilds like BMI and ASCAP and SOCAN here in Canada who actually pay the artists for the usage of their music. And and companies like Spotify have just done an end run right around them and just dared them. So go ahead, sue me. <laughs> uh, because there's no laws to really govern it yeah. as yet. Yeah, so musicians up here are a little bit more protected. A, a little bit, a little bit. A little bit. Yes. It's still, the Spotify is paying a minimal amount, like 0.004% of, of uh, what, say, BMI or yeah. SOCAN pays. Yes. And they're still using the music. They're using it, and they're profiting from it, and they're not paying the people who created it. And that can only be damaging because it's going to it's going to affect the creativity. Yeah, and, at, and at especially some... especially artists who record for a record company, if there's any real record yeah. companies left, because they're not going to put the money into a record if they're never going to make any money back out of it. And once it goes out on Spotify and it's out there in the ozone, baby, it's gone. <laughs> Nobody makes any money after that. I know a few people like Taylor Swift and a few of them actually tried to forbid or pull their, their stuff from Spotify. And they were basically overruled by the record companies because the record companies uh, want the exposure for the artists. Of course. And the artist goes back to doing what he's always done is get back on the road again. <laughs> the only way I guess you can sort of... Uh, make money? Well, I'm very fortunate. You know, I lived in the golden age of the record industry and and, and made my fortune. Now, so uh, I'm not too worried about it anymore, and I only do a few concerts a year anymore anyway. And um, But the younger artists coming up are really biting it. They're really getting, it hard, getting hit hard. You know, because the only source of income they have is to, to go out on the road. 
And of course, that increases the competition, which means that their prices on the road go down. And, uh, you know, so unless you're Beyonce or somebody like that, and even them, they're not selling records. It's amazing. I saw some of the statistics that came out for the number one album in the world last year. It sold 200,000 records. In the 60s, 200,000 records was a failure. You'd lose your record contract if that's all you sold. Yes, it definitely is a different world. Now, I so anyway, uh, enough of the politics. Now, it's too close to Christmas yes. for politics. I mean, I, I don't get too much of an opportunity to talk to someone who has played Woodstock, so hopefully it'll be cool to ask you a few questions. Oh, of course. Now, of course. now, now my Ask first away. sort of uh, eye-opening to Woodstock was was back when Much Music played music movies, musical movies. If if you know those who are are of my age and older remember that. Well, you know, here's one of the great ironies of Woodstock you might be interested in. Everybody of this generation remembers Woodstock from the Warner Brothers movie of Woodstock. But what they don't realize is none of the headliners at Woodstock are in the movie. Take a look. There's no Janis Joplin. There's no band. There's no uh, Grateful Dead. There's no Blood, Sweat, and Tears. There's none of the headliners. I think Jimmy made it in with his national anthem. Yeah. Uh, but, and the reason for that was, and this is strangely relevant to today, the fans so loved the music, they broke down the fences and didn't buy tickets. They just mobbed the place and 500,000 people. And it was like six County cops in the whole area. It was totally unexpected. Nobody was prepared for it, but it's the same curious relevance to what's going on today. They love the music so much, they just download it into their phones and they don't pay for it. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happened at Woodstock. They broke down the fences, they didn't buy tickets, the the promoters went bankrupt and nobody got paid. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the headliners all had contracts with the promoters that they were to get a percentage of any film rights. So when the promoters went bankrupt, they just edited everybody out of the film. (laughs) Even though even people who were filmed, they didn't want to pay them. They didn't have any money to pay them, so they edited them out of the film. So you go and look. And my own daughter said to me one time, "You were at Woodstock, Dad. I saw the movie. You weren't at Woodstock." But I, <laughs> yeah, I, I was there. As I said, that was my introduction to Woodstock. So I mean, I wouldn't even have known that certain musicians were even not even in the movie. Oh, none of the headliners are in it. Were you able to see any of the the other headliners? Oh, sure. Well, a few. It was a very chaotic scene. We arrived in the afternoon at LaGuardia Airport coming in from a concert in Atlanta. And uh, there was somebody there from the festival said, "Uh, you better bunk down. You're going to be here for a while. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the road is blocked all the way from Kennedy Airport to Albany. There's no traffic moving at all. It's completely jammed. And we don't know how to get you in there. So for a while, we thought, well, we're not going to be playing tonight. We're going to sit in the airport and sleep in the airport and fly out to the next gig tomorrow, you know. And then towards the middle of the afternoon, I believe that was on the Saturday, the governor of New York declared the area a national disaster area and mobilized the National Guard. And they brought in helicopters, National Guard helicopters. 
and they actually flew us into the gig. Which brings you back to your question, did I meet anybody there? We were basically flown in backstage a half hour before we were to go on. Um, the band was there, and they were all buddies of mine from yeah. Toronto. We'd worked the Young Street Strip together, Levon and Robbie and Garth Hudson. They were all pals. So here we were. A year ago, we were playing La Coque d'Or on King Street, on, on, Queen, on Young Street for Peanuts. And here we are now playing the biggest concert in the world. Um, and so I got to hang out. Levon and I were good buddies. And, and uh, we got to hang backstage. And Steve Stills was there from Crosby Stills. I knew Steve from Toronto also. And uh, we had maybe a few minutes to chat. Then we were on stage. And then they whipped us into the helicopters. And they, they flew us on out. <laughs> So there was very little time to really experience yeah. Woodstock. I was probably backstage for a half an hour, did the show, had another half hour to see a few old friends, and we were gone. Now, you you went on, was was that sort of the reason why you went on so late, or I guess, or early? Oh, well, it, there was no scheduling. Yeah. The, by, it was such chaos there that the whole thing was running late. We were supposed to go on at 8 o'clock on the Sunday evening, and we ended up going on at like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, the whole thing it, it was completely, <laughs> was there it any, completely uh, gotten out of, out of control. Was there anybody bush-eyed and <laughs> awake at one thirty in the morning to see you guys play? Yeah, about four <laughs> or 500,000 people. That was the peak of the festival was the yeah. sa Saturday and the Sunday. Yeah. By the time Jimmy played, now Jimmy didn't get to play, Hendrix didn't get to play until uh, next morning at about 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. And by that time, it was Monday morning. By that time, everybody was leaving. So only a handful of people got to hear that iconic national anthem. It was just a scattering of people and, and a big field of garbage left. <laughs> Which probably took a while to clean up. It did. It did. But the whole show was running like six, seven hours behind time. Well, it must have been just quite the experience just to see that many people, especially coming in on a helicopter. Yeah, flying in over it was quite a scene to look down and see that sea of people. But also remember, Blood, Sweat and Tears was a New York City band. And I would say two thirds of the people there were New York, New York people. They were New Yorkers. And so we were a hometown band, so we were just we were really welcomed yeah. as hometown heroes. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, we had a tremendous show. We did a great show, an hour, hour fifteen minutes, and and an encore. One of the few encores that was actually allowed because they weren't allowing any encores because they were running so late. But um, when five hundred thousand people stand up and go more, 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 <laughs> I guess they got to let you do it, you know. Uh, well, especially without a schedule. Who knows? <laughs> you say, "Hey, I don't." When when are we supposed to be on, anyways? Yeah, well, it was. I, I described it in my book as drugs, mud, drugs, and chaos. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, guess... it was an amazing event. You had uh, over the three days close to six hundred thousand people there. That's a small city. Mm -hmm. In that three days, there was not one incident of violence. Now, you take any other city of 600,000 people for three days and had not one, not one violent incident. 
pretty remarkable. It, it shows you the uh, it shows you the ethic, the what was behind that concert. Mm-hmm. It oh, was peace. Sure. It yeah. was about the concert was about peace, and for somebody to start a fight like Altamont or something like that would have been just a total betrayal of everything we came there for. So that that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, despite like I the, said, that's a six hundred thousand people. That's a small city. Yeah, and despite the chaos, it it, it ran relatively smooth uh, uh, as far as no violence. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There was not one reported incident of violence in the three days of Woodstock. That's now, remarkable. Now, with you show me any other small city of six hundred thousand people that goes yeah. three days without somebody being killed. Yeah, you no, know? No. Oh, for sure. Now, with my with my guests uh, at the end of the the chat, I like to have a segment called Fast Five. So it's five questions, and first thing that pops in your mind, you 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 say it. This okay. is a musical Rorschach test. Yes, it? a little bit. Um, okay. Is there a musician that you would have liked to share share the stage with? Well, you know, I've been very fortunate in that I've met and sang with most of my idols in my life. Uh, I never shared the stage with a Beatle, and I've always been a huge fan. Although we did open for uh, the Rolling Stones before Blood, Sweat, and Tears, we opened for Rolling Stones here at uh, Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. So I got to meet them. Uh, I never did get a chance to sing with Ray Charles, although I did sing with Aretha Franklin. So uh, it's a mixed bag. You know, artists don't get to meet each other as much as you might think. We're on the road doing our own thing, you know, and we very seldom cross paths out there unless we're playing a festival or something where there's a dozen different acts on the show. But uh, in the normal course of events, we don't really run across each other a whole lot. What is your favorite city to play in? Oh, it has to be either. Well, my two home cities are Toronto and New York. Some of my most memorable concerts were here in Toronto because here I'm playing and I've got family and friends Mm -hmm. and kids I went to school with are in the audience, you know. And I love this town. I've chosen it as my hometown. But my alternate hometown for many, many years was New York City. So, you know, whoever you can't forget the first time you played Carnegie Hall or or playing Madison Square Garden or the Beacon Theater, you know. So... It was kind of it was my hometown for almost forty years, and one of the reasons I loved living there was because it was very close to Toronto. I could be up here every month, so I never truly left Toronto. Poutine or pizza? Oh, poutine! <laughs> uh, favorite <No> doubt. <laughs> favorite beer or alcoholic drink? I uh, don't drink much. Uh, matter of fact, I don't drink beer. Uh. I like a nice glass of wine, a Pouli Fosse, white wine I enjoy. There's a recommendation. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, favorite place to pick up a shot of Java? Oh, well, I, it may sound, this may sound pretty pedestrian, but I like Tim Hortons. Hey, that seems to be the, the, the choice of a lot of my guests. Tim Hortons yes. makes good coffee, didn't <laughs> Now, where can people find you on the internets? Oh, well, you know, my, my website, davidclaytonthomas.com. I got Facebook and all of that. Although I'm not all that active with the social media stuff. 
I have a gal who handles all that stuff with me and she, for me, and she's she's very savvy on that. So most of the posts that you see out on Facebook, it's it's my my friend Gigi does all that. Well, thank you very much for for taking the time out and chatting with me. It's been definitely a a pleasure to have you on my show. All right, Jason, it's been a pleasure. Perfect. Thanks. Bye bye. I would like to thank David Clayton Thomas for chatting with me, and thanks to you for tuning in. And you can contact me on Twitter, at Jason Perrier. That's at Jason, P-E-R-R-I-E-R. And use the hashtag, Chance to Chat With, if there's someone who you want me to chat with. Until we chat again, I'm out.